Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today, I have a dynamic duo of entrepreneurs on the show, Shelley Force Eldred and Nathan Trinkline. They are the co-founders of San Francisco-based Rondo Therapeutics. The company raised $67 million in a Series A financing in March 2022. Shelley is the CEO and Nathan is the Chief Scientific Officer. Rondo is on a mission to develop bispecific T-cell engaging antibodies to fight solid tumors. For those of you who have an active Timmerman Report subscription, you can see an in-depth report I wrote on Rondo in the show notes. These two, Shelley and Nathan, have been working together since graduate school at Stanford University 20 years ago. They are now on their fourth company. Their biggest success together was Teneo Bio, a company that developed bispecific antibodies for liquid tumors. Amgen agreed to acquire that one for $900 million up front in July 2021. In this episode, you'll hear about how a pair of smart and driven entrepreneurs seek to strike a balance that makes each one of them better leaders. How they complement each other, really. You'll also hear how they think about the opportunity to develop bispecific antibodies that are fine-tuned to bind with different epitopes and with different binding affinities to get the right balance of tumor-killing punch without too much toxicity. Nathan and Shelley also talk about how these fine-tuned bispecifics might fit into a world with many different types of treatments emerging for cancer. Now please join me and Shelley Force Aldred and Nathan Trinkline on the long run. Shelly Force Aldred and Nathan Trinkline, welcome to the long run. Thank you for the invitation. So I'm happy to have you two on as uh, ambassadors, so to speak, for this area of biotech known as bispecific antibodies. Um, we spoke almost two years ago uh, when your company raised a Series A financing, but not a lot since then. One thing that stuck in my ear at that time was something that Nathan said, where you called this a golden age of bispecifics. And I wonder if both of you can elaborate on that just a bit. Is this the golden age? And if so, why? <laughs> Remarkably, I think bispecifics are still a relatively young field. I mean, there's been activity over the years, but I think why we feel like this is a golden age is, you know, a recent burst of both innovation and success and approvals. If you you know, look at the timeline of FDA approvals by specifics. There's been this burst of approval activity in 2022, 2023, and just good news rolling in on a weekly basis from clinical trials. Yeah. Nathan, what would you add? Uh, well, I think with bispecific antibodies, it's really exciting because there is a lot of new mechanisms that can be explored. And I think people have been really creative in terms of thinking about what you can do with a bispecific antibody that you can't do with just individual monoclonal antibodies. Um, you know, because with monoclonal antibodies, really the dominant, you know, mechanisms are blocking receptors or, you know, killing cancer cells with ADCC. And with bispecific antibodies, you can do a lot more. And, and I think especially you know, now there is a variety of different things people are doing with those that open up a lot of different doors for new types of therapeutics. So initially cell engagers were, you know, the, the dominant mechanism, right? So basically bringing immune cells to cancer cells to kill those. 
Um, but even just within the last couple of years, there's been many more types of mechanisms explored, like bringing receptors together, and even some of the newer things like cell surface degraders to actually, you know, remove proteins from the surface of cells using bispecific antibodies. And so, you know, I think it's a it's a format that can be used in a lot of different ways and opens up a lot of doors to, uh, you know, go after especially cancer in, in exciting new ways. Interesting. Well, you kind of flicked at one of my questions I plan to get to later as we delve into the science, but uh, we'll get there. For now, I'd like to just rewind a bit and learn a little bit about you two. Um, so where where did you grow up? Uh, Shelly, do you want to go first? Sure. So uh, we moved around the West Coast when I was a kid, Portland, Seattle, Sacramento. Um, my mom was a special education teacher. So uh, she, even though she passed away when I was in elementary school, I realized she had a really profound way, effect on the way I see myself in the world that I'm capable of doing pretty much anything I put my mind to and that I have the wow. power to shape the world around me. Um, Wait, how, 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 did your, how did your mom die so young? It was breast cancer. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. No, it's, it's formative, right? Yeah. So um, did you know early on that you wanted to become a cancer researcher because of what had happened to her? I think it took getting much older before I put those pieces together. Um, I think eventually my interest in math and science and teaching and eventually research kind of pointed me in that direction. But I think I had a higher level interest in understanding science and understanding biology. And the idea that I could actually make therapeutics came much later. Did you have a teacher in school, whether it be middle school, high school, that kind of uh, provided that spark for science? There there was a high school teacher for sure. My high school biology teacher was fabulous. And then I had one particular uh, professor in college who pulled me aside and said, you know, I think you have a real future in science. You should think about going to graduate school. And I remember thinking, what's graduate school? And and he said he started rambling off about his own experiences and how it's fantastic that you come up with your own novel research project and you do all this interesting stuff. And I remember thinking at the time, how in the world am I going to come up with original research? Um, but fortunately, I did follow some of his guidance and that that nudge to say you can do this was really important. That's great. Um, everybody needs someone like that that's mm -hmm. in their corner, believes in them. Yeah. Well, they, and they, there was the science, but I do also just quickly want to say there's the entrepreneurial bit. So my dad was a corporate attorney by training, but after a few years of practicing, he decided it wasn't for him. And he actually ended up starting a real estate investment management company with his best friend from law school. So I think also watching my dad build the company when I grew up was clearly formative. And then he had this amazing business partner that he's worked with on and off now for 30 years, which really influenced the way I think about kind of business partners. And I want to give credit to them, my dad and his business partner, Russ, because they were actually the first angel investors in Rondo. So influence coming down both sides of the family. That's great. I mean, you really do need both as you as mm -hmm. look back, both the business yep. and the science influences. Um, okay. Nathan, how about you? Where, where are you from? 
Yeah. So I, I grew up in a small town in Indiana. Um, most of my family actually came from a farming background and were teachers and things like that. Um, actually all four of my grandparents, uh, all grew up on farms and my mom even, you know, grew up on a farm. Um, and as a kid, I actually spent, you know, a lot of time on my grandparents' farms. And as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate how, you know, farmers, actually small farmers were, uh, kind of an early version of entrepreneurs, right? They, um, they had to be very self-reliant. They had to make things happen with, you know, very little resources and they had to solve a variety of problems, um, you know, which, you know, varied from day to day. And they also had to weather, you know, the boom and bust cycles of the years that went really well and then having to make it through the years that didn't go so well. So, um, you know, so that definitely uh, had an influence on me growing up and, you know, made an impact. And, you know, it may sound a little strange, but I actually think biotech entrepreneurship um, is actually a pretty logical extension from <laughs> being a small farmer. You know, it's, well, you know, this is uh, something I have a lot in common with. That's that's my background too. <laughs> so we could talk uh, all yeah. day about this probably. Yeah. But, um, okay. So, but the, the two of you met, um, I guess this was in graduate school at Stanford. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How, well, that, tell, tell that story. How did that happen? Well, I think we had some interesting converging experiences kind of coming into Stanford. As we got to know each other, we realized some of these commonalities that I think we both took academics in high school really seriously, but we were also both very social creatures and played a number of different varsity sports. And so we both came into science really being wired to play as members of a team. Um, and that that gave some of this direction. But I'll say for me, I did some undergraduate research at uh, UC Davis in a classic free flight genetics lab. I love teaching. I thought for sure I want to be a professor. So I was really happy to land at Stanford and meet Nathan on my first day there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, and I think I kind of really went this classic biology route, you know, where, you know, originally, you know, I went to undergrad and was a biology major. And I guess my impression was if you liked biology, you know, you basically were pre-med in college and then you went to med school. I, I kind of thought that was my only option. And I think, you know, fairly early on in undergrad, I met some great professors that kind of had op opened my eyes to other opportunities that, you know, were out there. And I think, you know, pretty quickly I became interested in, you know, kind of this whole world of genetic engineering and what you could do, you know, kind of manipulating DNA and making new proteins and kind of all of that stuff. And that eventually, you know, kind of led me to, you know, winding up at Stanford too. Um, and I think that particular point in time, just scientifically was very interesting because, you know, we both started grad school in 1999, which was, you know, the heyday of the genome project. This was, you know, a lot of exciting stuff going on with Celera Genomics kind of as a biotech company doing it and then the whole government effort. And, um, you know, we take for granted now that there are so many genomes available, um, thousands of human genomes and other animals. But back at that point in time, there wasn't even a draft genome available. And so it was, you know, kind of almost the wild west of just trying to understand where human complexity came from. You know, do we have 100,000 genes, 200,000 genes? And so there was um, kind of this big eye-opening experience um, uh, when the first drafts of the genomes came out, and we realized, you know, you know, mice and humans had pretty much the same number of genes. They were very similar, and 
kind of was a gut check for all of us in terms of, you know, where this complexity came from. But I think what that led to was, you know, these were really big questions that we were getting, that were getting asked and they required, you know, very big projects to understand those. And I think, um, you know, both for myself and I think Shelley related to this too, you know, kind of the model of individual thesis projects were kind of frustrating because you could only do so much. You could only do so much as a single person. And I think we both gravitated to these larger projects, bigger questions that required more people, but it was a little bit of, it was hard to find a way to fit that into the academic system, right? Where everybody needed their thesis project and that sort of thing. And so I think Shelley and I both kind of pushed back against that a little bit and, you know, looked for ways to collaborate not only with each other, but with other people too. And I think that, you know, was a definitely reflective of, you know, kind of our interests and, you know, being social and, and kind of doing bigger projects with with more people. Now, getting through graduate school, it's hard. <laughs> there's yeah. lots of there's a lot to learn, and you've got to you know put together that thesis and get the PhD. Yeah. I, I, you know, late nights and and all that. Um, so you had to do that. But when did the light bulb turn on that? Okay, there's this other way of doing science in industry. Like maybe we could tackle some of these other bigger questions in a company. Yeah. So I think it did start during grad school. So we ended up joining uh, the same lab because it was a hotspot for genome research at the time. And as is typical in grad school, we each had our own core thesis projects, you know, that you kind of worked on head down day to day solo. And as we got to know each other, we were able to admit to one another that that was pretty isolating. We're both really social team oriented people and it was starting to be a drag. So with the draft genome sequence in hand, we pretty much hatched a plan to do a joint side project that was too big for either one of us to handle alone. Um, and I think that really lit a fire. I, as Nathan said, it was funny to watch the academic system try to deal with that because they said, well, whose project is it? It can't be in both your theses. You know, somebody's got to own it. But that's not what we were looking for at the time, credit so much as doing fun science as part of a team. So I think that first joint project lit a fire of realizing that working together wasn't just additive, it was synergistic. Our brains worked really differently. We approached problems in really different ways, which meant that our strengths were complementary. So we did some great work, but then we were each a lot happier. How do you um, complement each other? I think it's rigor. Um, we beat the hell out of each other's ideas is what we do. Um, we both come to it with enough self-confidence that, you know, we can we can take a beating on our ideas and come come out the other side. Um, I think Nathan tends to be honestly more of an idea machine. And I tend to be the one who's really good at poking holes in things and things and figuring out the exact controls or the exact strategy we would need to actually execute on those things. What would you say, Nathan? And I, I'd add to that too, where, you know, I think Shelley has a very rigorous, systematic approach to things where she can really take, you know, kind of whether it's the science of what we're doing or something and really craft that into a plan that can be executed on. And I think I'm probably a little bit more of a storyteller and thinking about, oh, how do we, 
you know, pitch this to investors and how do we, you know, kind of sell this to partners. And so I think it's, you know, we can take a look at the same results or the same science. And, you know, I think Shelley has a very rigorous way of turning that into a plan to execute on. And I think, you know, I, I gravitate more towards the storytelling. Ah, so there's things that you have in common, like in mm-hmm. the rigor and the social nature that the team sport, but, um, uh, it's helpful to be able to pressure test each other's ideas, and and uh, uh, you, you found that the 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 sum was greater than the individual parts. <laughs> you, you you had that realization yep. early on. Agreed. Um, and oh, sorry, I was well, going to go tell you a little bit of just about how we decided to do something else. So you know, other than uh, staying in academia, and I think it's part of our work on the ENCODE project and the genome research, we had developed some tools and technologies that we realized could be useful for genome researchers all over the world. Um, So we pretty much saw an opportunity in the market. We knew we had a really strong budding partnership um, and the idea of starting a company made sense on a lot of levels. And to be honest, it was just so much more exciting and interesting than the idea of like, joining a big biotech and being a really small slice of something. Well, this is part of Stanford culture, right? I mean, yes. starting companies, this is something people do and it's it's actually okay. <laughs> it was it was borderline at the time. I think a couple of people on my thesis committee were pretty sure I was going to the dark side, but we did it anyway. So you work on this ENCODE project for a while. And then, I mean, at, by this point, you've worked together on how many companies? Rondo is number four. Four companies together for more than 20 years. Yep. Um, This is pretty unusual. Uh, um, Why why do you think you've been able to, this is a brief aside, why do you think you've been able to like continue working together uh, without uh, tearing each other's hair out for 20 years? (laughs) Uh, I think we have had a lot of that happen. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's just, I mean, honestly, the it's just a system that works very well. And I think especially, you know, for myself, like, you know, I have a lot of great ideas. I'm confident in what I can do, but I, I would get worried about just getting lost in my own head and not having, you know, somebody to just bounce ideas off of and kind of pressure test things. And so I think we've just, we've just found a very productive way to do things together where, the product that comes out of it's just much higher quality than I think, you know, we'd be able to produce individually. Uh, and, you know, part of the reason this works is we actually agree on very few things out of the gate, um, almost nothing, really. <laughs> and so to get anywhere, one of us almost always has to convince the other one to come around to our point of view or find some middle ground, um, which I really think does give this better product. But it's also very useful. As Nathan said, you can get lost in your own head, but when you're forced to put your idea or your rationale into words, sometimes in doing that, you realize you don't really like it either. How do you resolve these disagreements? Do you, do you, have, do you have some rules like that you don't, um, you know, don't get too emotional or, or angry? Yeah, you know, I think some of it's just the interpersonal, how do you like be a decent human being? But, you know, some of these things have gone on a long time. And so one funny story is, I mean, we have been debating like the ideal PTO policy for a company for probably 10 years, you know, in terms of like, how do you establish like time off policies for, you know, employees within your company? And 
we've honestly been debating that for going on 10 years now. And, and, you know, I'm in the favor of, I'm in favor of, you know, unlimited PTO, you know, Shelly thinks there is, you know, disadvantages to that. And, and what we ultimately do is, you know, we have kind of our different, uh, different areas of responsibilities within companies, right? So Shelly does head up, you know, the finance and the HR and those sorts of things. And so even though we'll debate these things, we ultimately kind of know what our domains are. And the person who kind of owns that domain just makes the final call at the end of the day. And deep respect, right? I mean, deep respect for one another's abilities and as human being underlies all of this. So, you know, we do not agree all the time. There are definitely figurative hair pulling sessions and times when we need a break from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we stay respectful of one another and we manage to make it through it. And there's a great part about having a bigger team, which is you go out and you seek input from others too, from your team, from the board, from experts. But as Nathan said, in the end, it tends to come down to the final call lands on the person you know, whose sphere of influence that falls under, whatever that topic is. Okay. Okay. This is really interesting, I think, for teams out there. Um, <laughs> but let's uh, let's advance the story just a little bit. Let's talk about Teneo Bio, because this was your um, your company. It ended up a pretty big success. It's acquired by Amgen in 2021 for, I think, $900 million up front. And there might have been some, some other pieces to that deal, too. Um, how did Teneo get started? What was the big idea there? Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think even taking half a step back from there, even how we transitioned from, you know, kind of the genomics world into therapeutic antibodies, because, you know, real briefly, you know, the company that we did spin out of Stanford, it was a, it was a functional genomics tools company that, you know, ultimately evolved into a small molecule screening platforms and, you know, basically to make a long story short there, you know, that company was acquired in 2013, um, you know, to a, a company down in San Diego called Active Motif, um, really just to bolster, bolster the, uh, you know, kind of the commercial activities of those products. And that gave us an opportunity to think, you know, how could we, you know, get closer to patients and actually develop therapeutics ourselves? Because we spent a long time at Switchgear, you know, learning about how drug development worked, um, you know, learning how, you know, early stage discovery worked. And we really became interested in that. And there was kind of this, this interesting set of circumstances around that period of time too, where a lot of genomics people were migrating towards immunology because of the advent of next-gen sequencing and being able to sequence full immune repertoires, right? So, you know, you could take you know, a sample of billions of T cells from a person or another organism and actually sequence the full, you know, T cell repertoire or even B cell repertoire of an organism. And, you know, companies were forming around that kind of with an eye towards diagnostics, um, companies like Sequenta and Adaptive that were, you know, looking to, you know, measure minimal residual disease and things like that really from a diagnostic angle. And kind of with our functional genomics background and ability to do things in you know these higher throughput ways, you know, really methods that we developed at Switchgear, you know, we saw an opportunity for actually doing antibody discovery this way. And okay, so, now for those for those not familiar with uh, the sequencing of these immune cells, this mm-hmm. is especially interesting and really important because it's it's mm-hmm. not like the the regular whole genome that lays down that single template for making all the proteins and cells in the human body and it's fixed. 
Exactly. These are the these immune T cells and B cells are adaptive. They're they're mm -hmm. they're constantly rearranging themselves, reshuffling that genetic material and forming new types of antibodies. And so and some of them go on to become cancerous. And so mm -hmm. this is like under you know, gathering that information uh, mm -hmm. can point you toward uh, development of new diagnostics and, and new therapies. Exactly. And and it was this really interesting coming together of different technologies that opened the doors to doing antibody discovery in a totally different way, right? And so, like you said, each immune response was basically like creating a new genome, right? You had all these new rearrangements and you could sequence. And with NGS, you could actually sequence all of these antibodies from the B cells and see a complete picture of what that immune response was. And so, again, you know, kind of long story short, we were able to take a lot of our functional genomics background that we had developed at Switchgear and at Stanford before that, and really take that to then turn it into an antibody discovery platform where we could then take an immunized animal, sequence every B cell that came out of every lymph node from that animal, and then design these discovery campaigns that were all sequence defined. And using high throughput gene assembly and high throughput transfection, you could actually develop antibodies in a much more thorough way and much more rapidly than you know previous uh, you know previous technologies using like hybridomas or phage display or things like that and so that around this was around 2015 you know again through kind of a variety of circumstances we had then met uh, Roland Bulow and Mariana Brueggemann who had developed this new type of transgenic uh, rodent that made a particular type of fully human antibody. And it turned out that the discovery platform that we had created was a was an ideal fit for getting the antibodies out of that particular humanized rodent. And it was then in 2015 where we basically brought all that together to then start uh, Teneo Bio, really with the focus of making bispecific antibodies and and what ultimately led into the, the CD3 T-cell engager platform. Now, what pointed you toward bispecifics? Because, I mean, I suppose you could have made different kinds of antibodies, monoclonals, antibody drug conjugates. There's, there's lots of things you can do. Why bispecifics? I think part of that, it's just being at the cutting edge of whatever we were working on. So jumping into therapeutics at that time in 2015, being at the front of the wave of next-gen sequencing-based antibody discovery, I think immune cell engaging bispecifics and bispecifics in general were really at the the bleeding edge at the time. And I think we also had a great opportunity to take all of our genomic style thinking and techniques for building bispecifics in a really high throughput way because unfortunately none of us were able to look at a bispecific sequence and predict exactly what it's going to do. There's a huge weight on empirical testing, which is expressing and high throughput screening hundreds and thousands of ARN combinations to make the ideal bispecifics. And that really fit in our sweet spot of things we were good at. Now, what was happening in the wider world at this time? I'm trying to think if Blincito was the first bispecific antibody approved. Um, and, and and this was happening pretty much in parallel with the cell therapy revolution, like this realization that you could target CD19 uh, for for blood cancers. You, you looked at that and thought, hmm, maybe we've got a little bit better of a mousetrap here or, or a different take on 
how to do this? We definitely saw some opportunities, right? Because I think Micromet and then later Amgen, they deserve a lot of credit for blazing the trails, you know, with bispecifics and especially T-cell engagers. Um, Blincido was approved in 2015. So this was right around the time that we were, you know, forming Teneo Bio. Um, but as, as powerful and potent as Blincido was, it also suffered from pretty severe dose limiting toxicities, right? The CRS was very problematic and there was... There was a real challenge of using those really potent molecules effectively, you know, in in the clinic. And so at Teneo, we saw an opportunity to actually design CD3 antibodies from scratch, really fit for purpose to do exactly what we wanted to do. Because a lot of those early stage bites, um, they actually were repurposing CD3 antibodies that had been around for many years and just trying to make the most of what existed, right? So these were old mouse hybridoma antibodies that were very potent and, um, you know, and, and, you know, through antibody engineering, you could just try to make those work as best you could. But what we really did differently at Teneo was just saying, you know, at the very start, let's just like design something on paper that would have the ideal properties and then just and go out and actually build that sort of bispecific. If you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column, and get insightful coverage of current topics from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions are available at a discount. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And I'm going to be in Cambridge, Massachusetts on January 23rd for an event that supports the Timmerman Traverse for Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation. It's called Bridging the Gap, and it's organized by Sufyan Abulhuda a member of my latest team on a mission to raise $1 million for cancer research. An outstanding lineup of scientists and entrepreneurs make this a can't-miss event on January 23rd. I'm moderating a conversation with Phil Sharp of MIT and Vicky Sato of Denali Therapeutics and Veer Biotechnology. Get your tickets now. I'm including a link to the registration page in the show notes on TimmermanReport.com. Now, for those unfamiliar, what is a T-cell engager? This is a bispecific antibody. It's got two prongs, right? That one that binds to the target you want, which is CD19, in this case of Blincido, and CD3. So what does an, a molecule like that do? So you're exactly right. Uh, antibodies are those Y-shaped molecules. And naturally in the body, the two different arms of the Y bind the same target. But with bispecifics, we engineer them. So one binds, you know, each of a different target. And with these immune cell engagers, like you said, one grabs the tumor uh, and one grabs an immune cell like T cell. And what it does then is it brings the tumor cell and the T cell in close proximity and also triggers the T cell to kill the tumor cell. And the challenge that we have as a field is that these immune cell engagers, they're turning on the immune system. So it's a little bit like playing with fire and you have to do it incredibly carefully. And so we were not, definitely not the first of the clinic with a CD3 platform. As Nathan alluded to, we had the opportunity to learn from a lot of folks that had come before us. 
And we learned then in those early generation CD3 T-cell engagers that CD3 arm was probably a little bit too strong. I think it's a little bit like a sledgehammer. So the therapeutic windows were not very wide. It, make it made it really hard to implement their activities in patients well. So we had the opportunity to come in kind of as the next wave with the idea that we can tune that that immune cell triggering activity back a little bit and try to find a Goldilocks zone. So yeah. that's the part that brings in the killer T cells mm-hmm. that attack the tumor. And when when you say, Nathan, you said earlier there was CRS, cytokine release syndrome. This is a clue that um, these drugs are really potent, really powerful, mm-hmm. killing killing the tumor very, very fast. So fast, in fact, that it's causing a massive inflammatory reaction that's kind of dangerous. <laughs> and so that's the part you wanted to tune, as you say. Exactly. And so, again, and this kind of goes contrary to how antibodies had been developed for decades, right? Because normally you want the most potent antibody to block a receptor or do ADCC, right? And so to develop agonist antibodies, it really is a totally different mindset in terms of what you're actually trying to develop. And this is where our unique NGS-based discovery system was ideally suited to discover these types of antibodies because we could get a huge diversity of antibodies out that had a range of affinities that bound different epitopes. And even though very few of those would be good receptor blockers, kind of in the classic sense, when you're looking for an agonist antibody, some of those had ideal properties, right? And so, um, you know, so we set out on that first CD3 discovery campaign at Teneo, and we identified hundreds of unique CD3 antibodies, and many of those were very low affinity, right? So typically, you know, you know what what would be considered, you know, not sufficient affinities for blocking a receptor, and so those were the tor- sorts of antibodies then that we put into bispecific format, and lo and behold we would see antibodies that actually could elicit tumor cell killing, but not elicit as much of the cytokine release, which was indicative of, you know, some of the talks that you would see in the clinic. And so, you know, basically over the course of three years, you know, a lot of the preclinical development that we did, you know, characterizing, basically maximizing for tumor cell killing and minimizing for cytokine release, um, that preclinical hypothesis ended up playing out very nicely in the clinic, both with the BCMA bispecific that we made, and then later with uh, a CD19 and and some other liquid tumors. Now, how did you structure the company? Maybe this is more Shelley's question, Um, because you had all these opportunities to develop new types of of drug candidates, not just against CD19 and CD3, but CD3 and other targets like BCMA that were becoming um, more validated in the scientific community. Um, how did you think about like um, creating value across a platform? You, you have a platform here mm-hmm. now at this point for discovering multiple products. Yeah. Well, and and fortunately, we you know had a great team at Teneo at that point, including a really fantastic chief business officer and. There were a lot of discussions about this balance of wanting to eventually develop a whole pipeline based on this kind of platform, but that that first program, we have to get to proof of concept as quickly as possible. So with the CD3 PCMA, this is a lot of what pointed us at 
liquid too much to begin with is the idea that you could get to a clinical proof of concept relatively quickly. You know, BCMA wasn't a completely novel tumor antigen. It, you know, was really uh, hot tumor antigen at the time. And we really went out the gate saying we want to prove this concept of tuning back the CD3 you know, in the quickest, most reliable way we can, which is how CD3 uh, BCMA ended up going first. And then past that, it was the opportunity, as you alluded to, to uh, build out this platform. And to be honest, you can talk to lots of people, you know, from that time, there were lots of debates about how to structure the company and what do you spin out and what do you keep inside. And some initial decisions were reversed. And even taking those lessons going into Teneo, I, I don't think there's a perfect way to structure these things. You know, we've seen groups have it work where you've got an umbrella LLC and then assets in each of these C-Corps. Uh, different companies do it different ways, but, you know, going into Rondo, I think we really had been thinking about just flexibility, that we need to be open-minded about how things shape up as we go and we might not be able to guess on the perfect corporate structure from the beginning. Okay, now you two are always pressure testing each other, like you said earlier. Um, and but what was the key piece of data? Was there one um, where you looked and said, "Oh my gosh, this is working. This is what we want." Um, at I think at Teneo with our early programs, you know, I think there was, I mean, honestly, there were several preclinical pieces that got us excited, right? Initially, like I had mentioned before, you know, doing some in vitro, in vitro assays with primary T cells from humans, you know, we could see really robust killing of tumor cells and very small amounts of cytokine release. You know, so that was, I would say, kind of the first big encouragement. And then we did our first mouse studies, and that same molecule, you know, behaved very well in mice, you know, more or less mimicking what we saw in vitro. And I think those were the two pieces then that, you know, made us very, you know, excited then to get that into a phase one study as, as fast as possible. And, and, you know, that was a typical case where, you know, with having to start with, you know, because one of the things with immune agonizing antibodies is the FDA requires you to be very conservative as you dose escalate because of the potency of those molecules historically. And so you have to start at very low doses and then, you know, escalate over time. And so, you know, everybody would hold their breath every, you know, every time there was a dose escalation and a new dose and, you know, hoping for good things to happen and not bad. And so that was definitely a very kind of exciting time where everybody rallied around and, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. What was the key piece of data that brought Amgen to the table and ultimately led them to acquire you? Um, I mean, I think there were a variety of things, right? Because that first BCMA CD3 molecule was actually acquired by AbbVie, right? And so that was a single asset sale to AbbVie. But, you know, I think it got everybody's attention and, and put Teneo on the map to a large degree. Um, and then I think as we developed additional molecules, you know, we were, you know, it's a combination of, you know, being out on the conference circuit and, you know, giving presentations and updates and talking to other scientists. But, um, you know, I think a lot of it was, um, you know, Amgen would see our updates at various conferences, you know, the business development activities had all of those conversations going. And, and I would say it was just a gradual, you know, build up to, you know, them really seeing the value, you know, not only in some of our additional, 
clinical assets, but then also the platform and what could be done with that CD3 arm, you know, in general. Well, and I, I think, to be honest, we were in the right place at the right time, too. The CD3s were really gaining ground, and there was a bit of a land grab among the big pharmas to make sure everybody had, you know, a CD3 platform. So I think, of course, we did brilliant work, but there was very much an aspect of good timing. Well, let's talk about that gaining of ground because I know, like in the um, in the cellular immunotherapy world, there's a certain amount of bias where people say, you know, these are just the best, most powerful, you know, anti-CD19 and BCMA uh, therapies out there, and bispecifics can't ever hope to compete on efficacy. Uh, but that's not exactly how you saw it, and and actually, there was a story happening behind the scenes where the T cell engagers were catching up are closing that gap or the perceived gap on uh, efficacy. Um, well, and I think, you know, for patients, you know, fortunately, there's many different options, right? And some patients are eligible for some of these cell therapies where, you know, they do have amazing response rates, you know, amazing durability. And that's great for those patients that actually have access to those therapies. I think the biggest challenge with cell therapies is patient access though, right? So what do you do with all those patients that aren't close to a major medical center and can't do, can't go through the process that you need to go through to actually get those therapies? And so I think, you know, it's, it's a little bit diplomatic, but I think, you know, there's, you know, you need a variety of therapies for a variety of different patients. And I think from our standpoint, bispecifics have the major advantage of mimicking a lot of that biology, you know, that you get with a cell therapy, but um, being much easier to administer because they're effectively off the shelf and following protocols that have been used for decades with, you know, other antibodies. These are liquids in a vial. You, you know, uh, mm -hmm. someone can just yeah. inject. The, there's none of this complexity of yeah. a cell therapy. Mm -hmm. um, what about the efficacy? What was happening that persuaded a lot of the big pharma companies to say, you know, we need our own programs? Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's also an interesting question because there's efficacy in what types of tumors too, right? And I think where a lot of the success was seen with, you know, especially kind of early generation and next generation CD3 bispecifics was in the liquid tumor space, right? So it started off with CD19 with different, uh, you know, leukemias, um, you know, primarily ALL. Then BCMA became a very popular target for multiple myeloma. People went back to CD20 for other B cell lymphomas. And so tremendous success, you know, with the liquid tumors. And I think that's where a lot of the big, you know, acquisitions were made. And, and what a, lo a lot of the early approvals that we're seeing now is teclistamab and some other bispecifics, you know, that's where a lot of the success has been. Um, you know, we and others in the field were hoping that that would translate very easily into solid tumors. And so, you know, uh, trying to substitute out, you know, BCMA for some solid tumor antigens was an obvious thing to try and honestly turned out to be much more difficult than what we and others, you know, had hoped for. And I think that's kind of the state of the field right now is, you know, how do we leverage the success that we've seen with liquid tumors, but really, you know, get better effects in solid tumors? Because to be honest, just doing the swap out of a solid tumor antigen has not led to the same efficacy that has been seen with liquid tumors. Well, this is the founding idea for Rondo. So mm -hmm. you um, you had your success with Teneo, Amgen, which you know was the first mover in bispecifics with Blincida, well, acquiring Micromet, 
right? I mean, um, so this is success. I mean, um, change your life in many ways, I suppose, as scientific entrepreneurs. Um, how, what was your next set of conversations about what to do next? I mean, you, you kind of alluded to it here with tackling solid tumors. Yes. Well, and and I think we always knew we were going to take another crack at this. You know, we clearly knew how to build companies. Now we knew how to develop drugs and things were coming to fruition uh, with Teneo. There were a lot of learnings that we wanted to put into place, both scientifically to tackle the next scientific question with respect to solid tumors, but also having done this a number of times, it was an opportunity to build a company and a team from scratch again with all the lessons we'd learned about building teams and managing culture and an opportunity to build a billion-dollar company that could be a model for biotechs of the future where uh, it was built on a culture of respect. We're training the next generation of leaders and seeing that any success that we continue to have would also pave the way for easier financing in the future for other mixed-gender leadership teams. Mm -hmm. And you still wanted to work together? <laughs> Indeed. We, I mean, I'm not kidding when we said we really sat down and had a series of conversations to be very sure we wanted to work together again. Neither of us wanted to default into something. We're both actually fiercely independent people and with no shortage of self-esteem. So we're quite certain we can do really exciting things on our own. And we want it to be a very conscious decision rather than a default. Like, do we want to do this again? And I think when we reflect on all the options, it's a lot more fun to do it with a partner. And I think we both knew the product that came out would be even better than either one of us could do alone. Okay. And of course, this is a hard, hard thing. A lot of people have tried um, various approaches at solid tumors. Could you, Nathan, maybe you could talk a little bit about the scientific challenge that you're, you, what are you up against here? I'm thinking of that, that hostile tumor microenvironment, um, you know, T-cell exhaustion. It's hard mm -hmm. for them to infiltrate, um, or they, not, not very many do, that the antigens are, are, yeah. are, are few and far between. Yeah, that's, those are all good points and all big obstacles. I mean, I think, like you pointed out, you know, it's really that suppressive, tumor microenvironment of solid tumors that makes it much harder for T cells to do their job. And you couple that with the fact that there's just many fewer T cells in those tumors to begin with, right? Because you think of liquid tumors and you basically have T cells all throughout your circulatory system, you know, available to act. Whereas with solid tumors, you know, there's many fewer T cells and you have to overcome that exhaustion. And so, you know, when you think about the challenges of solid tumors, you know, it's much more, it's, it's, more of an efficacy challenge to go with, you know, the the usual safety things. And it also, you know, requires you to step back and think about, you know, the the completeness of, of immune response that happens beyond just triggering CD3, because that's, you know, CD3 acts through the T cell receptor, which is, you know, basically the first signal to initiate immune responses. But there's also a variety of co-stimulatory receptors that serve to sustain and and really generate a robust you know sustained immune response to to fight off cancer or an infection and so that's one of the the big areas that we're exploring at rondo is looking at you know developing not only you know 
next generation CD3 bispecifics with an eye towards solid tumors, but also exploring, you know, bispecifics in the co-stem space to trigger that second signal to really sustain that immune response, you know, in solid tumors. And then, you know, thinking about, you know, what indications you know, are going to be most amenable for this type of treatment. And, you know, a couple of those that we have, you know, at the top of our list are, you know, bladder cancer and, and ovarian cancer. Okay. Well, I want to come back to that in a minute. But uh, when we spoke about your company, just when you came out of stealth mode, early 2022, you talked about uh, signals one, two, and three mm-hmm. for uh, like how you think about um the, the kind of immune response that you want to spur against a tumor. Um, so this this guides your thinking on targets and indications. Can you tell me a little bit about what signals one, two, and three are and how how you incorporate that into your your plans? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know this is a very much simplified version of immunology. You know, calling these signals one, two, and three, but um, but it's it's apt. Um, so, signal one again comes through you know the T cell receptor of which CD three is a subunit of that, and that really initiates that response. And then there's a variety of different co-stim receptors like four one BB, CD twenty eight, you know, Gitter, Ox forty, those sorts of receptors that serve to sustain and keep that response going. And then signal three is typically thought of coming through a variety of cytokine and cytokine receptor interactions, again, to facilitate that crosstalk between the, the innate and adaptive immune system and just keep that response going so that the T cells don't become exhausted. And in terms of how you address those therapeutically, you know, bispecific antibodies can be used, you know, in with all three of those sorts of uh, signaling pathways. And I think that's also part of the complexity of solid tumors is, can you fit all of that function into a single molecule and have, you know, have monotherapy? You know, that's, I think what the field's coming around to is that's increasingly a challenge to fit all of those functions within one molecule. And so I think what we and many others in the field are um, starting to explore too is how do you do combinations of these uh, bispecifics in a way that you can, you know, dose them in a way that is safe and effective and, you know, kind of control that response in the way that you want to. And that's, and that's a big challenge, right? Because developing a single new biologic is, is daunting in itself and developing two novel agents that you are developing at the same time in a phase one trial, um, even honestly, even three or four years ago, could be considered unrealistic, but I think fortunately the you know the regulatory agencies and and some of the the more adventurous uh, biotechs and pharmas out there are beginning to do this, and I think it reflects just what the biology dictates for you know treating these diseases. So you've got uh, all I, these. Go ahead, said Shelley. Uh, I was going to say, Rondo, we're really planning to test both hypotheses. We have two lead programs. And one of those is focused on a kind of co-stim single agent mechanism, the idea that you could go in and treat a solid tumor that had enough endogenous signal one happening that you have a chance at seeing single agent activity with co-stim bispecific. And the other program really tests the other question is if you have a solid tumor that might not have much endogenous signal one, you know, how do you how do you deliver signal one and signal two in a novel, novel combo? 
sounds like you've got lots of uh, knobs and dials that you can push <laughs> and turn and fine tune all these functions in that you want or or don't want, <laughs> or you want to mm-hmm. dial up or dial down. And yep. and you need to experiment. You need to play around a bit to find that that ideal balance with a drug candidate. And it's really empirical, I think, is what we figured out, being able to express thousands of bispecifics and screen them in biologically relevant primary cell assays and high throughput format. These are the things we've gotten really good at to generate a lot of that empirical data to drive our decisions. Okay. So you have um, a lead candidate uh, that you can talk about now uh, for bladder cancer. I I think that's right. Uh, What was it about this candidate that excited you and made you want to advance this one toward the clinic? I think it was a combination of both the the targets that we, you know, gained a lot of confidence around and then, you know, bladder cancer, you know, as an indication, I think also had features that we thought were made it a good opportunity for this type of, you know, therapeutic. And so, you know, with this particular Costum bispecific, um, we do think that there's a good chance that we can see some single agent activity because we expect to see some signal one endogenously there in bladder cancer. Which I think in the you know the, the clinical evidence for this is the fact that checkpoint inhibitors work to some degree you know in bladder cancer, which would indicate that there's some endogenous signal one there. So you know we like that as you know a disease that has some unmet need. You know there's a lot of patient need there for it. Um, we were able to develop you know a molecule you know that had really great functional profiles on the targets that we had chosen, and we think there is uh, a really great um, clinical development path, both for evaluating monotherapy activity, but then also exploring some expansion cohorts in combination with uh, different agents too. So I think all those things coming together, you know, make us very excited for this molecule. You know, we will be initiating, you know, manufacturing and getting into IND activities, you know, early next year, and then uh, you know should be uh, in the clinic uh, hopefully mid twenty twenty five. What's the target? <laughs> so we're we're not disclosing that yet, but what I will say is you're not going to be surprised. Um, philosophically, with respect to tumor targets, we're taking the approach of clinically validated tumor targets. We have a molecule that looks like regular IgG. We're reducing the risks on those axes and really focusing, you know, our efforts on on tuning that CD28 arm. So okay. stay tuned in two months because in, in a couple of months, we'll have <laughs> the story out and uh, then we'll be uh, excited to tell it. Well, I intend to uh, follow up then. Uh, one question I had, though, about bladder was I think there was some really compelling data out at ESMO, I think, with an antibody drug conjugate from CGEN uh, in, I think, the more aggressive bladder cancer population. Uh, but now, th- th- so this raises a question, like this is... Uh, uh, an antibody drug conjugate, a very, very potent antibody against a given target. Um, how do you think about where a bi- where do bispecifics mm-hmm. fit vis-a-vis some of these other treatment modalities mm-hmm. that are here and coming? And that's something we spent a lot of time digging into before we committed to this particular program. So talking to a lot of KOLs, because even a year ago, the early data with PADSEV that ADC was really exciting. And so we spent a lot of time talking to KOLs saying, you know, if PADSEV ends up 
looking as good as as we think it's going to, is there still going to be room for an immune cell engager? And the resounding response was yes. So number one, there's a lot of patients who just can't handle the tox associated with an ADC. Um, two, the ADCs work better, it appears, on um, tumors with high antigen density and CD3 engagers and immune cell engagers tend to work well uh, with a variety of antigen densities. And also that there are going to be relapses and that most relapses on ADCs are not antigen loss. There are other mechanisms associated with the payloads. And so for all of those reasons, we felt really confident going into this that, you know, even with PEDSEV kind of rising up through the lines of therapy, that that would actually open up a lot of really nice white space behind it for a treatment like an immune cell engager. Anything you'd add there, Nathan? Uh, no, I think that's a really good summary of it. Okay. So, I mean, there are places in which bispecific antibodies are going to play, and they're going to play well with or complementary in this vision with antibody drug conjugates and with cell therapy. Yep. Um, how how many of these do you think we're going to have, like in the therapeutic armamentarium in you know another twenty years? Is this going to be like a, a mainstay treatment modality for multiple types of cancer? In your view. Uh, I would say for sure. I think the the number of targets to explore with bispecifics and even the mechanisms, right? Because even in the ADC field, people are exploring bispecifics, you know, hooked up to various toxins, right? And there's ways to develop next generation ADCs even with bispecifics. And so, you know, there's a lot of targets to explore and there's a lot of combinations. And I think um, it's going to take a variety of these molecules um, you know, to to look at the different tumor antigens to figure out which works best for which diseases. And then the really daunting part of it is how do we combine those in a way to get, you know, the best efficacy and the best safety profile. But I think taking a step back and looking at the perspective of patients, we're in great shape having so many different kinds of modalities because some are going to work well for some patients or tumors and some are going to work well for others. And we do think bispecifics are going to become uh, more and more important players, but I think there's always going to be room for multiple modalities, even for any given target. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're easier to manufacture uh, than some therapies out there, easier to scale. Um, pricing doesn't have to be in the <laughs> $400,000 range or something like that. Um, so that, um, they can reach a lot of people. Um, Agreed. Last thing I want to ask you too, um, you know, this has been a hard couple of years for a lot of scientific entrepreneurs out there. Fundraising environment has been pretty tough. People have need to adapt, um, sometimes in some unpleasant ways. How, how, how have you guys um, had to, uh, uh, how do you think about like adapting to just the, the current set of circumstances to make sure that you're able to deliver on this really long-term vision over the next 5, 10, 15 years? I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is flexibility and pragmatism, that we may have a certain strategy in mind for building a pipeline at Rondo, but that at least for the next year or two, as things are coming back, that you know we're really going to have to be open-minded and flexible. 
I think this is where I really appreciate that, number one, this isn't our first rodeo. Um, we've got a lot of operating experience, a lot of experience in the field, and that we're probably more comfortable with maintaining some of that flexibility than others. And I also really appreciate that we have a fantastic Series A syndicate of five different investment groups, all of whom who are deeply, deeply versed in therapeutics. So they have reasonable expectations on how much this costs, how long it's going to take, the kinds of surprises that pop up. Um, and so we rely on them very much, these board members, as thought partners. And I think between our relationships and networks and their relationships and networks, we're all on the same team trying to build Rondo in the best way possible. I think we're going to have a couple of really good options. And and I think what I would add to that is, you know, if you, if you think of kind of the core ingredients of a biotech company, it's it's science, it's money, and it's people. And the people part of it, in my opinion anyway, is by far the most important part of it. And I think that's where we are exceptionally, I think that's just where we're in the best shape. You know, the team that we've assembled at Rondo, including the board that we have, just really is an all-star cast of just, you know, everything you'd hope for in a team. And so with that in place, I think the science and the money part of it will work themselves out no problem. And, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm always hopelessly <laughs> optimistic, but I'm not worried about the financing part of it at all. <laughs> well, I do remember you mentioning this to me when we talked a couple years ago about selecting mm -hmm. those in venture investors who would be around the table very intentionally. And you yep. were in a good position. You were in a position of strength where you could actually do that, and not just yep. take anybody who would write you a check, uh, which you know sometimes happens, and you sometimes end up with a real pain in the neck <laughs> uh, <laughs> on your board who you know isn't on board with your plan and wants to do something that maybe the other VCs don't want to do. Um, you is there any like lesson learned there from like how you um, select the people? That well, you, you want know, to be with you on your journey. Some of this is timing and luck, right? Because when we raised our Series A, that was a strong time to be out there raising money. So we did have, we were fortunate to be able to, you know, have some say in who we wanted as part of that Series A syndicate. But I will say, you know, the board that we have, you know, the the investment groups and then the specific board members. I mean, we could not have put that together in a better way, just in terms of the people that are involved and. You know, even our board meetings, you know, it's it's much more of just a collaborative problem solving dynamic. And and there are challenges, right? I mean, when you know, the phases that we're getting into are very expensive, very risky. But I think everybody brings a lot of great perspective on how to mitigate risk, how to place our bets in a smart way. And it's just um really couldn't be happier with the the group of people that we're working with. Mm -hmm. But I think it does make us really appreciative of that. So, you know, one scenario down the road is to raise some additional capital and push some more programs into the clinic. And given the really great dynamic we have among the investors right now, if we bring in maybe one more investment group, we're going to, I think, be even more particular about who that is and that they can fit in the, the supportive you know, even keeled kind of no egos dynamic that we have right now is we really just don't want to wreck it. Uh, so finding, you know, maybe that one new financing source, uh, I think we're going to be very thoughtful about it. 
Well, steady wins the race, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) It is the long run for a reason. Yes, yes. Shelly and Nathan, thank you so much for joining me on the long run today. Thanks a lot, Lucas. A lot of fun. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.